I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. So grateful for God's grace and the fellowship of believers and the scripture reading and the prayers, singing. So many ways in which God encourages us in our Christian lives. Uh, Back to uh, Romans chapter 8. A couple of Sundays ago, we, we looked once again at And what the Bible has to say about the eternal security of the believer. The fact that as Christians, if if we are truly saved, if we have turned away from our sin and turned to Jesus in faith, the reality that we cannot be lost. This is such a, a critical doctrine for followers of Christ to understand and to grasp. A doctrine that certainly should affect our daily lives in numerous ways, certainly a truth and a reality that should affect our joy as believers. The fact is, God's people should be the most vigilant and the most joyful and the most secure and steady people that you could ever meet. Unfortunately, there are some believers that imagine that they are kept by their own faithful obedience, uh, that they are holding on to their salvation, holding on to God, that, that, that any security in their Christian lives rests really on their own power to continue. And if these individuals are perhaps more steady and more consistent in their obedience, this, I guess, isn't so bad, uh, except that it typically leads to pride, and arrogance. And if, on the other hand, these individuals are less mature and more inconsistent in their obedience. This can produce a whole variety of things, hopelessness and doubt, discouragement, despondency and fear, fear that springs from ingratitude and ingratitude that springs and stems from our faithless questions about the character of God and His power and His goodness. So the questions that we have been considering and the questions before us this morning are these. Can we be separated from Christ by our inability to preserve our own faith? Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Can God's plan for our safe arrival in glory be altered? Can it be hindered or thwarted? Can outside forces take away our salvation. And if you are there in Romans 8, I encourage you to follow along beginning in verse 26. Paul writes, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we A few weeks ago, in verses 26 and 27, we noted the promise that for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in verse 1 of 
chapter 8. If that is you, if you are in Christ and he is in you, as Paul says in verse 10, then your salvation is being protected by God's Spirit, by the third member of the Trinity. Your, your salvation is being protected and preserved by the Holy Spirit, even in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of the fact that, that your perseverance is shaky, in spite of the fact that you are very limited, that sometimes you don't even recognize your real needs. Sometimes Paul says you don't even know what to pray for. Your prayers are, are, are narrow-minded. Your, your prayers are short-sighted. And yet, in spite of all of that, the Spirit of God, Paul says, protects you. This is his ministry. He, he does this moment by moment and day by day, strengthening your perseverance, working within you, helping you with your particular burdens and with your specific weaknesses. He is interceding for you. He is bridging the gap, pleading before God with you and for you, translating your burdens and your struggles to God, enabling you to take another step of faith. And this brought us to that massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8, verse 28. And in verse 28, we noted another promise, the promise that in every Christian's life, their, their salvation is being upheld by God's providence. Their salvation is being upheld by His providence. That God Himself is causing every part of our lives to become the perfect, tailor-made path for our spiritual best both now and on our way to glory. That everything that happens to us is directed by God and carried out by God. This is His providential preserving work. God is carrying out divine purposes that are in His heart and they cannot be stopped. He not only created all things out of nothing, but He continuously works to preserve and to uphold all things, including the salvation of all of those who trust in Him. God has thought of everything. He has thought of every contingency and has worked all of those things out. He is good by nature and He has the power and the ability to do good. He he is directing all things in every detail. And He even uses evil, both natural and moral evil, for His glory and the good of His people. And that was the last thing we considered, the idea that this promise in verse 28 is not for everyone. This isn't a promise that all things work together for the good of all people. But for who? Paul provides two descriptors. He says in verse 28, for those who love God. In other words, this is what Christians do, right? From salvation to glory, they are striving against self and are drawn to loving God. They love God and they love others because of God. This is a primary evidence of God's securing work, that you love Him. Then Paul says this, that this sweeping and this deep and weighty promise of verse 28 is also for those who are called according to His purpose. For those that have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we'll look a little more carefully at that in just a moment. So Paul says, if you're a believer, that that not only is your salvation being protected by God's Spirit, and not only is your salvation being upheld 
by God's providence. But on top of all of that, Paul goes on to describe for us in verses 29 and 30 another stabilizing truth. And the truth is this, that your salvation is initiated by God's sovereign will. It is initiated by God's sovereign will. And because your salvation is initiated by God's sovereign will, it's indestructible. It's indestructible. This salvation plan is invincible. And it's invincible because God himself initiated this plan of redemption. And there are two ways in which he initiated his salvation plan and his saving purposes in your life and in mine. And the first is this. Your salvation was initiated in time or in history by God's sovereign call. Your salvation was initiated in time by God's sovereign call. Now, there there are two types of calls in Scripture. There's the general call of God and what we refer to sometimes as the effectual call of God. And I think it's important for us to understand the difference between these these two things. And so we'll just look first here at the general call. The general call of God. The general call would include what is seen. It would include what is seen. For example, God calls all men to acknowledge Him and to worship Him and to respond to Him in in thanksgiving and in praise. And He does this without words. He does it without words. Back in Romans 1, verse 19, Paul wrote this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, God is wise. God is powerful. He is genius. He's profound and deep and massive and huge and immense and transcendent. God is full of design. God is full of symmetry. God is active in the world. And God made man with the capacity to observe those things and to reason those things out and to conclude that there is a God. And that man must serve him and worship him and be dependent on him. The problem, of course, is that man is born with a sin nature. He is born with the desire in his mind and in his heart to to shut that up. To, as Paul says, to drown that out, to suppress that reality and that truth. So through nature and through what we see, there is a call to respond to God. But the general call would also include what is heard. What is heard. Or we could say special revelation or or maybe just the gospel itself. So God sends his, His messengers into the world with the good news of Christ on their tongues and on their lips to proclaim the gospel to those very same people that Paul talked about in Romans 1, who are rejecting God. And when that message hits their ears, it is the instrument 
through which God can open their hearts and they can respond to the gospel and repentance and faith. Romans chapter 10, Paul would go on to say in verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? But it's still a general call because lots of people have heard the gospel and still rejected it. They've still rejected it. So it's not an irresistible call. It's it's not a call that is going to get them all the way to glorification. It's not a guaranteed call. So God reveals himself to all people at all times in nature through what is seen. And he reveals himself to some people at some times by giving them the gospel in special revelation. and, And they hear it. But the reason that we refer to this as, as a general call is, is because not everyone believes it. Not everyone believes it. Most reject what they have seen in creation. And most people reject what they have heard when they hear the truth preached and proclaimed. But in Romans 8... Paul must be talking about a different kind of call because we notice the unbreakable chain. In verse 28, he ends with mentioning these for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he picks up in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So clearly, Paul is not talking about those who can reject the call. Here he's talking about those who are actually effectively called. They don't resist. They come to Christ. They they believe in Christ. They actually come all the way. This is what we call in theology an effectual call. An effectual call. This kind of call is, is God's inward and ultimately saving work by which a sinner is brought to repentance and faith. But, but it's an inward work. It's an, it's an ultimately effective work that God does. And therefore, it is absolute. It's absolute. So in the chain of redemption, the initiation of God's sovereign will involves in time, or in other words, at a particular moment in your life, it involves in time, a call, not just a general call, but an effectual call, a call on your heart, an unstoppable call, a call that is irresistible, a call that is efficacious, a call that is effective, a call that is always, 100% of the time, successful, a call that always leads a person to salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to like to refer to this form of a call as God sovereignly interfering with your life. In other words, God stepping in and making dead rebel hearts alive. Now, the idea of this effectual call is really found everywhere in the New Testament. 
Back in Romans 1, verse 7, Paul said this to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And 1 Corinthians 1, that later in that chapter, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, listen to what he says here, those that are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the purpose of God's effectual call is that you would get to glory. That's the purpose of it. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in his suffering, or in suffering for the sake, or for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, listen to this, before the ages began. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now back to Romans 8. It's unmistakable that in verses 28 and in verse 30, Paul is speaking of a call that is effective. The language in these verses is pretty straightforward. These are unbreakable links. And the call of God that Paul mentions here cannot be rejected because the grammar in, the, in, the, in, in, in these verses simply does not allow for it. All of those who are called are also those who are glorified. Or you say it this way, there are no dropouts. There's no dropouts. You're called, you will be glorified. And this, this whole discussion is, isn't, isn't intended to cause us to be confused or to, or to sort of lock up mentally. It's intended, I believe, by Paul to bring us profound joy. Think about that. Christians are called according to God's purpose. God has a purpose. And he's working that purpose out. I will say, what, what solid ground? I mean, what an anchor to know that as a believer. Now, it's very interesting to see how the Word of God presents and handles these subjects, very delicate subjects of election and calling and predestination. I mean, what about this divine calling? You might be surprised to know that God anticipates the obvious tension 
those obvious questions that we have when we consider these kinds of things. He anticipates, in a sense, the human struggle. So he dropped down to chapter 9, Romans 9, verse 11. It's just continuing this discussion about all these same themes. And in verse 11, Paul says, Though they, and he's speaking of Rebecca's twin sons, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So this, this is clearly destroying that unfortunate notion that foreknowledge means that God looks ahead and, and sees what certain men are going to do and, and sort of identifies that and then makes his choice deciding to elect them. Verse 12 says, She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, so I mean, so much, so much for human power, human wisdom, human initiation or process. This is God's wisdom. This is His plan. This is His process. This is His power. Now, Paul knows where we're going to go with this. I mean, it's as if he's, he's anticipating where we're going to go in our minds, right? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, or the New American Standard says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But then this just leads to another question. If it's not up to the human being to ordain the outcome, then how can God judge anyone? So in verse 19, he anticipates again this. You will say to me then, why does he still, God still, find fault? For who can resist his will? Because the answer to that is no one can. Not based on what Paul's already said in these previous verses. No one can, can, can resist his will. His will is unstoppable. His plan cannot be thwarted. His purpose will stand. Uh, but if that's true, how, how can people be left in their sin as morally responsible beings and God express mercy on other people who are just as guilty? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he is called, not just from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What is Paul saying? He's saying that, that, that in an effort to ask about the justice question, okay, because he knows that's on our minds, the justice question. He's saying in an effort to ask that question, be careful. Be careful not to rush past the mercy part. Are we all born corrupt? Yes. Are we all worthy of condemnation? Yes. So if God chooses to save no one, is he just? 
Yes. And if God chooses to save some, is he less just? No. Especially not if he crushes his own son. Not if his perfect son bears their sins and dies in their place. You might be thinking, but why me? Why would God call me? You're certainly not any better than anyone else in this room. Certainly not any better than anyone out there. Definitely not because you're smarter or because you're more valuable or because you're more attractive. If you're saved, why did God call you? Why did he draw you to himself? And regarding the question, why me, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon once said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me For I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Now, if God's sovereign will and purpose in calling you to himself leads to the question, why me? The only answer that we are given in this particular text is what Paul tells us next. This is the connecting verse that really pulls it all together for us. Uh, the reason why you were called. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, So just track with me for just a moment. If you're a believer, think about that time in your life when God brought everything together. When he, at that moment of your calling, That moment when when guilt and conviction over sin was there in your life. That time when you also had the necessary circumstances that would lead you to the truth. When God converged all of that, when you either heard the gospel for the first time or God reminded you of the gospel that had been presented to you at another time and maybe dozens of times in the past. At that moment, God called you. And from your vantage point, from your perspective, you were seeing Jesus in that moment as your only hope. And you entrusted your life and your eternity completely to Him in repentance and trust and faith and reliance. But what Paul tells us here is that that moment was not the beginning of God's saving work in you. God's sovereign purpose for you began long before that. So Paul says this, that not only is your salvation initiated in time, in history, by God's sovereign call, but before that, your salvation is initiated in eternity by God's sovereign love. In verse 29, Paul isolates two previous acts of grace on God's part, two reasons why you were called. 
Number one, he says this, you were loved beforehand. You were loved beforehand. Notice how he begins the verse, for those whom he foreknew. Now, the word for at the start of this verse serves a couple of functions. First, it connects back to verse 28 and indicates why all of life works out for your salvific good. All things work together for good in your life because God loved you beforehand. That is why and how everything is working out for your good. But that conjunction, that that word for, also connects the idea that this divine action was behind the day when you believed. That behind that day when you believed, when you saw your sin for what it really is, when you saw Christ as your only hope, something else was going on. So, God has a plan already at work. And it involves loving you beforehand. Now the word foreknow can be somewhat confusing. Some have taken this word foreknow or to know beforehand to simply mean that God knew ahead of time whether certain people would choose to believe in him or not. That he knew, that he knew because he's timeless and he knew ahead of time what you would choose. And because he knew that you would choose Christ, he therefore predestined you to salvation. Or to say it another way, he predestined those to salvation that he knew in advance would choose to believe in him in time. But the question is, is that really what predestination means? I mean, it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. In what way does God predestine me If foreknowledge simply means that he knows ahead of time how I'm going to choose by my own will and by my own control. That sounds more like identification. Like as if God sees what I'm going to do, he identifies me, he simply makes a note of my choice, or he sees what I'm going to do and then he elects me. Or or maybe confirmation, it sounds like confirmation. God sees what I'm going to do and he simply confirms what I'm going to do. And I understand why people have gravitated to this view of predestination and foreknowledge. It it seems to relieve the tension. It seems to relieve the tension of the idea that God only gives saving mercy to some and not all. We often forget the reality that all men are worthy of judgment. And that God has the prerogative to pour out His mercy on whom He wants to pour out His mercy. And this view of foreknowledge seems to make all of this easier to swallow. It it seems anyway to us like it gets God off the hook morally. But there are several reasons why this simply cannot be the meaning here. For starters, we have to understand that the background of this New Testament word is found in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word in the Hebrew, the word yada, which means to know doesn't simply mean that God knows something about someone, but that he knows them in an intimate way or or that he chooses to set his affection on them. It has this idea that God chooses beforehand to love someone with covenantal, faithful love that will never fail. For instance, we see this in Genesis 18, 
verse 19, speaking of Abraham. Verse 19, it says there, Moses wrote, For I have chosen, the word is yadah, to know. And in fact, the New King James, it says, For I have known him. But in the ESV, they just translate it, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, God is saying, I have set my affections choosing Abraham in order that he may have all of the things that I plan to give him. Speaking of Moses, in, in Exodus 33, verse 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I yada, I know you by name. Just simply saying, I am favoring you in my sight. I am choosing to set my affection on you. I am knowing you in an intimate sense. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. The Lord says of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I, and the word again, yada, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, what does to know mean in that verse? Clearly, it means that God is saying, I have an intimate relationship with you. I have an affection for you. I have an appointment for you. I have a plan and an ordination for you, a purpose. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a, it's a relational knowledge. It is a determinative knowledge. God even spoke in this same way about Israel. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, You only I have known, same word, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Of course, of course we know God knew of, of other families. I mean, God knew of other families and people groups and nations. He knew about them because God knows everything. But in this sense, he's saying he has known them, Israel, intimately. He's chosen them out of the other families of the earth. He has made a covenant with them. So when the Old Testament speaks of God knowing people in this way, it means that he has an intimate relationship with them that he initiates. Now, what about the New Testament? Romans chapter 11 Verse 1, a very interesting antithesis here, says in Romans 11, 1, Paul, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So clearly, Paul is not talking here about God's mental knowledge. In fact, the opposite of God for knowing in this passage is what? Rejecting. For knowing means not rejecting. For knowing means accepting them according to his faithful love. God knew them beforehand. He loved them beforehand. He set his affections on them beforehand. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, or the word is eclectos, which means chosen. And then he goes to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says. That for believers to be foreknown by God is for them to be chosen by Him beforehand for an intimate relationship. So, But how do we know that that's what Peter means? Well, notice verse 20 of the same chapter. In this case, he's speaking of Jesus. And Peter uses this same word. He, speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. So Peter's simply declaring that God the Father's affections were set upon Christ in eternity past. So you go back to Romans 8, verses 29 and verse, 29 and verse 30. And you notice also that only those that God has foreknown are the ones that are predestined, are called, justified, glorified. And the object of the, of the verb here is very personal. Those whom. Only those whom. So it can't mean that when God foreknew us, that he knew that we w- what we would do in the future. Or that he knew something about our future decisions or actions like our future choice of him. This verse doesn't say that. What this verse says is that he knew us. He didn't know things about us. He didn't know choices that we would make, even though God knows those things. But that's not what Paul's saying. That's not the point. He's saying that he knew us. And because he knew us in this intimate sense, before we were even conceived, for that reason, then we get to glorification. In other words, foreknowledge in this passage refers to something that actually and unalterably leads to an intimate eternity with God. He foreknows us in love. So the best way to understand foreknowledge is to view it as foreordination. If God has foreknown it, He has ordained it before it actually takes place in history. So you could say this about your salvation. God loved you beforehand. He foreloved you in eternity. And in eternity, when He set His affection on you, He did so with a desire to have an intimate relationship with you and with your eternal destiny in mind. God loved you in eternity. And this leads to the second part of Paul's answer to the question, why you were called. First, because you were loved beforehand. But second, it's because you were destined beforehand. You were destined beforehand. For those whom he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined. This word predestined, when used here and in other places... It means to be appointed for something. And because of the prefix here, it means to be appointed for something beforehand. To get a, to get a better understanding of this concept, it would be helpful for us to look once again at, back at Ephesians 1. So if you'll turn to Ephesians 1, we went there a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at verse twenty Romans 8, 28 together. But over in Ephesians 1... Picking up in verse 3, just notice all the similar terms. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul's saying this is a settled issue. This, this, 
is speaking of every believer's status. This is true of us. We have been blessed in this way. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Again, we, we notice all of, all of these ideas, they, they really collide in this, in this passage God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's the election side of it. In love, He predestined us, He says. That is the predetermined purpose that God has for it. So you have the previous election in mind. You have, you have the eternal time frame in mind. You have the foreloving in mind. And you have the result in mind. The eternal purpose. In this case, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And the strength and the force of the word in Romans 8.29, this, this word predestined, it, it's, it's carried over from the previous discussion about foreknowledge. So if God fixed His merciful saving love on you in eternity past, then He also appointed you for something throughout all eternity as well. And you get the whole package. I mean, that's, that's Paul's point. Paul's point here, I don't think, is to get us to drill into every term that he gives us here and to treat these things as individual parts. His point is that if you have one, you have all. If you're called, you, you, you have the whole thing. So he's saying that in eternity past, God set his love upon you And in eternity future, God has predestined you for that end result. And what is that end result that Paul mentions? Verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, Paul reminds us, this is the ultimate outcome. This is where every believer is headed. This is the guarantee. This is the goal. This is what God is doing. This is what He's working out. This is His plan that cannot be stopped. This is His plan that cannot be thwarted. This is the path that you are on. No matter where you are today, as a believer, yes, you're weak. You're full of weaknesses. Your prayers are myopic and small. You don't always know what your true needs are. You Sometimes you don't know how to pray. You're struggling, but a true believer will always be in the hands of God, being conformed to the image of Christ, and ultimately in glory, the full image of His Son. So you put it all together. God has a plan. And the members of the triune God promised to one another before the world began to carry out this plan. And you and I, when that happened, we were not around. But we were in their hearts and in their minds. We were named in that plan as those upon whom God would set his affections. It was a plan to redeem sinners from eternal judgment. It was a plan to accomplish this through the person and work of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the eternal Son of God. It was a plan that those redeemed people at an appointed time in their lives would be brought to repentance and faith. It was a plan that would work itself out so that upon your faith in Jesus, you would be declared righteous before God and fully justified in His presence. 
It was a plan that in the moment you were declared righteous, you would be given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your eternal destiny. And then you, along with all other believers, would begin the process of being conformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, becoming a more holy people in actual heart and life. It was a plan that in one future day you would receive a resurrected body exactly like that of Jesus Christ, fashioned in perfection for all eternity. And at that point, as you stand before your Savior face to face, the completion of this plan would come about. And in the end, Christ would possess a redeemed people. A massive number of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to praise Him and to honor Him and to exalt Him and to serve Him for all eternity. And you and I are included in that plan. This is what God is working out in our lives. He is conforming us to the image of His Son. And not just outward conformity. Uh, Not like that little girl who who wants to be like her mom, like her mother. And so she puts on her mother's high heels. And she gets the makeup kit out. And she gets the costume jewelry out. and, And whatever else mom will allow her to play with. And she makes a big mess doing it. But she's trying to look like mom. But that's just outward conformity. And the Lord isn't content with outward conformity. And he, God wants inward conformity. God wants comprehensive conformity. And so the little girl dresses up like mom, but inward conformity shows up when she starts acting like mom. And she starts talking like mom. And she starts thinking like mom. Now she's beginning to conform to the likeness and the character of her mother. Christians, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. We are, we are not becoming Jesus or becoming Christ. There's only one Lord in Christ. But we are conforming to His image inwardly so that we are living out His characteristics. Like Him in holiness. Like Him in purity. Consumed with, with what is right and pure and true. Full of grace. Submissive to the Father in every way. Controlled by the Spirit. But Paul's not done. There's another purpose. In fact, we can say a higher purpose. We are being conformed to the image of His Son in order, he says, that He might, Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, this idea of firstborn uh, doesn't mean much in, in the society and the culture in which we live. But in many of the ancient cultures, the firstborn was the one that inherited the bulk of the estate. When the father died, the firstborn would become the leader of the home. He would manage all of the assets. He would care for the members of of near family and extended family. He was the premier one. He was the one with the maturity. He was the one with the experience. And so the idea here is that of preeminence. So we don't become like Christ so that people can look at us and say, Wow, what a wonderful Christian. We become like Christ so that Christ is magnified, so that He is praised and worshipped. Jesus is the prototype. He is the trailblazer, the preeminent one, the one who conquered death, the one who reversed Adam's curse, the one who did what Adam could not do and who did what no one else here could do. 
So then this question comes up. If, if that is the plan of God, and if it is secure, and if it is set in motion, and nothing can stop it, then why would you have to exercise faith? In fact, you could say faith doesn't even come up in this passage. Although it is implied in, in verse 30 when Paul mentions our justification, right? Clearly, faith is involved because, biblically speaking, a person cannot be justified by anything other than faith. Right? I mean, we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul has already made this abundantly clear in Romans 3, verse 28, and Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 1. But if that is the case, you say, okay, so faith is a part of this. That is, that's required. But if that's the case, then does your salvation start with you when you believe? Paul would say, no. It began with foreknowledge. It began with his election. election. It began with his predestination of you for an intimate relationship with him for all eternity. This is God's glory. He did all of that. And when he called on your heart, you repented and believed with all of your mind and soul and strength. And now your salvation is so secure because of the unbreakable purposes of God. It is so secure that Paul can use these terms in verse 30 as settled issues. Those whom he predestined, past tense, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet in our lives, right? But he even includes the end result because you are so secure that it is spoken of as a settled reality. It's no wonder that Paul then says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? This is the inescapable conclusion, a conclusion that would make no sense at all if man were the one initiating salvation. It would make absolutely no sense at all if man were the one responsible to secure and to protect and to preserve his own salvation. So listen, if the love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to you, if you have spirit-enabled power over the flesh, the, the, the power to put to death the deeds of the body by submitting your mind and your will to the Spirit of God and to His truth, if the Spirit is pulling you into intimate fellowship with the Father by convincing you that He is your spiritual provision and your protector, if the Spirit is interceding for you in prayer before the Father so that all things are working out according to God's providence for your salvific good, if you are in Christ and those evidences are there, Paul says emphatically, you cannot be lost. It is an impossibility. God is for you and he has been for you even before you were born. Now, what should this understanding do in your life? What should all this do in your life? A few things. First, I think it should humble you. It should humble you. These doctrines ought to promote humility, not arrogance. These doctrines ought to promote responsibility and holiness and mission, not apathy and complacency and privilege. 
I also think it should bring you great joy. It should bring you great joy. The, the permanence of it. You sin every day. You stumble around in your life. And you don't want to be condemned because of that. You want to know that your sin is covered. Paul says, listen, your salvation is being protected by the Spirit of God. It is being upheld by the providence of God. And it is initiated by God's sovereign will. And ultimately, it will be completed by God's sovereign power. And that's where he goes next. Not only should it bring you great joy, and not only should it humble you, but I think this understanding should also make you passionate about evangelism. Passionate about evangelism. You not only know that God has foreordained and foreloved a redeemed people, but you also get the privilege of being the gospel proclamation in those people's lives. Listen, folks, I am here because of God's predetermined plan. I am here because he loved me beforehand. I am here because God destined me beforehand. But that's not the only thing that's involved, right? Because when I came to Christ, there was preaching too. I had to hear the word of God. So there was preaching involved and there were people involved. In the first service, I pointed out Chris Akins was sitting on the back row in the far right corner. I was just talking to someone yesterday at breakfast telling them that when I was a teenager, going to a church in our, in our area as a teenager, I was a sophomore in high school, I started attending church and had not really grown up in church, been around the things of God very much, but started going to a youth group. Chris Akins was in that youth group. Folks, this is over two and a half decades ago. And this man's in our church now. He was following Christ. His wife, Heather Akins, Heather Sears back then, following Christ. And there were others. I went into this youth group. I didn't know the Lord. I was in that youth group for six months. And you know what? Chris Akins' life brought credibility to the gospel message. So that at the right time, I heard the gospel preached and got saved. God doesn't save us apart from those things. God uses those things. This ought to make us more passionate about evangelism. And so we ought to go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. Every one of the missionaries this church supports believes in this. Believes in these doctrines. And yet they're out there doing the hard work of missions and evangelism. What do you think keeps them on the field in the face of difficulty and trials? And when people are rejecting the gospel left and right and don't believe. Because they believe these verses. That's why they're there. So proclaim the gospel to all nations. Take the gospel to them every day and at every opportunity because God is merciful and he promises to use that as his instrument. God is doing his work. Every person you meet is a potential redeemed part of humanity until they die and prove otherwise by their final rejection of Christ. So keep preaching. Keep teaching. Keep sharing. Keep testifying. And finally, this understanding, I think, should put Jesus Christ at the center of your security. It should put Jesus at the center of your security to make him the center of your focus. And when you doubt God holding you through the circumstances of your life, when you say that you believe in him, but then you doubt Because of all that's going on around you and all that's going on in you, 
God wants you to fix your gaze on him. God wants you to depend on who he is, the founder and perfecter of your faith. God wants you to take courage. If he has foreknown you, he has predestined you. He has predestined you, he will call you. He calls you, he will justify you. If he justifies you, he will glorify you. He will get you safely home. So take courage, keep pressing on, confident in God's invincible salvation plan. Let's stand. Gracious Lord, we admit how small and insignificant and, and weak and helpless we really are and how incapable we are of even beginning to understand and express these wonderful truths that we have been looking at in the last several weeks in Romans 8. We pray that somehow, once again, you would take these inadequate words and feeble efforts on our part, that by your Holy Spirit you would enhance those things and enrich those things and bring them home to us deep within our hearts. Lord, today's message is certainly one that is for your church, for your people, for believers, aimed at putting an unshakable rock under their faith. But Lord, we also realize that in some ways this message is a message for every unbeliever that might be here this morning aimed at winning them into that faith because of how much rock is under it. Lord, there are certainly some here that, that struggle with doubts, that don't have the confidence that They possess true salvation. And Lord, there are certainly others who know. They know in their hearts that they don't have salvation. They know that they are without hope. Lord, they know that they are headed for judgment and condemnation, that they stand under your holy wrath. Lord, our prayer for them is that they would turn to Christ. Turn to him into the promise of eternal life in him. Lord, we praise and magnify you this morning. Thank you for this privilege we have to come together week after week to learn, to grow, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be built up and drawn closer to you. We thank you, God, for your sovereign call, for your sovereign love and your invincible salvation plan. Christ's name.